So today we're excited to have a guest preacher come and uh, share the word with us today. Before we get to that, I wanted to give you a quick update on our lead pastor search. We don't really have a lot of new news, uh, but just want to let you know that we are still on track to hopefully receive candidates from our search firm by the end of the month. And just want to invite you to be praying with us uh, for that process. Pray for wisdom amongst uh, the elders and search committee uh, in our church. Please also pray for these candidates that God would be speaking to them and doing a great work in them as well as we all try to work and discern together uh, where God is leading us. And um, overall, it's just, oh, so far, it's been a really encouraging process just personally for me to see how much unity God has created amongst our church, how much alignment we all have. Um, and, you know, I'll hear somebody else say something that I was already thinking. And, and it's just, it's encouraging to see that God is bringing us together through this process. So I invite you to continue to pray uh, to that. And today we're going to hear from Scott Stonehouse. Scott is an elder at Wood Creek Church in Richardson and has been a member of that church for many years, was uh, on staff there as well uh, for a period of time, and he's going to come and uh, bring the word for us today, continuing our sermon, our series in Philippians. And uh, one of the things that's unique about this this season that we have in our church is that we get to uh, have more connection with other churches around us. And I think that's a really cool opportunity that we have to remember that as wonderful and great as our community is here, we are connected um, through the Holy Spirit, through the work of Jesus with churches in Dallas and around the world. And we're all members of one church together. So uh, I hope that this, uh, that Scott's words bless you and that you're blessed by the word of the Lord as he brings it to us today. So please welcome Scott Stonehouse. Thank you. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, How should we suffer? Uh, How should we face adversity? Whether that is for our faith or just more generally adversity and suffering. Uh, For the record, uh, this is not something I like to think about. Uh, My preference, my default is comfort and convenience and ease and chill, right? That, that's my preference, my vote. Um, and yet, we all suffer. Uh, some people will suffer more frequently than others. Uh, some people will suffer more severely than others. Some of you, all of you, have your own experiences with suffering. Some of you are, praise the Lord, coming out of a season of suffering. Uh, some of you are in the middle of it right now. And then for all of us, there's more suffering to come. Some of the stories and the the scars that you have, the wounds that you have from suffering, you've shared with others. Uh, Some of them you carry secretly. But we all suffer. And so this question, how should we suffer, is a good one because it's relevant to all of us. But we need more than just good questions. We need good answers. Uh, We need wisdom And I believe we find some in this morning's passage. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. And while you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of context and give you an overview of where we're headed today. As Clayton said, this is the uh, a series going through the letter of Philippians. This is message number two, and this will take us through Easter. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is in prison. Likely he's under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting his appeal, his trial, before Caesar. And he's writing this letter to Christians in Philippi 
in part to instruct them and encourage them in how to deal with their own suffering and struggles. One of the ways we know that is at the very end of chapter 1, verses 29 and 30, he says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So they're not in prison, but they are facing some level, some kind of adversity because of their faith in Jesus. And so Paul is writing to them, and although he's not going to explicitly say, this is how you should suffer as a Christian, what we see when we read this passage is that he is demonstrating to them, this is how a Christian suffers, because this is how I have faced my adversity. And they can learn from him, and we can learn from him as well. So here's where we're going. Here's an overview of where the message is going. Paul's main idea is that everything that he has had to, to suffer through, all the adversity he has faced, has served to advance the gospel. That's the main idea. He's going to provide two examples of how the gospel has advanced. One from inside his imprisonment, one from outside his imprisonment. And then finally, he's going to let them know how he can rejoice when the gospel is proclaimed, even when there is strife, even when there's division within the church. So that's where we're going. Let's begin by reading verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now let's pause there and consider what is it that's happened to him? Like, what is he talking about? A lot, actually. So there were mobs. There were beatings that he suffered. He was arrested, thrown in prison. There was a shipwreck. He was put in prison again. Like, Paul has gone through a lot. And so when he says, what I have been through has really served to advance the gospel, this is what he's talking about. He's gone through a lot. It seems like there are forces and circumstances that have conspired to hinder Paul from being able to preach and spread the gospel. And yet, that hasn't happened. That's why he uses the word really, because it's unexpected. Because what you would expect is, hey guys, I would love to give you an update on, on my gospel ministry. I've just been really busy. You wouldn't believe what happened to me, right? I got my ship sank, I got beaten up. You would expect, given everything that he's been through, that these would be excuses for why he hasn't been able to spread the gospel, to share his faith. And yet, it's the exact opposite. So, really, these things have served to advance the gospel. And notice he doesn't say, despite these things. It's not, even though all this happened, somehow, I was able to still share my faith. He says, it's because of these things. Because of these things. These things have served to advance the gospel. And this is what God does. And that's one of the things I want you to hear. This is what God does. This is his pattern. He takes all the things that could go wrong and he uses them for his purposes. Paul says something similar to this in last week's passage, chapter 1, verse 6. 
He tells the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He says something similar also in his letter to the Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's promise is that everything that you go through, the good, the bad, all of it, he will use for your good and for his glory. Now that doesn't mean you're going to get a better job, get a bigger house, that you're going to be cured from cancer. What it does mean is he will use all of these things to shape you to look more like Jesus. And that is good for you, and it brings glory to God. His promise is that your pain is not pointless. His promise is that he will use your suffering to shape you to be like Jesus. Another observation, I listed out all those bad things that happened to Paul, right? You know, the shipwreck, the beatings, the imprisonment, the arrest. Paul didn't list those out. Now, did those things hurt him, discourage him, frustrate him? I'm sure they did, right? I'm sure they would frustrate and discourage any normal person. But that is not Paul's focus. Paul's focus is not on how what happened to him affected him. It's on how what happened to him affects others. That is Paul's focus. How his suffering will impact other people. And so my question for you is when you suffer, is your focus on you or is it on others? Now I want to ask that question as gently as possible, because we're all human, right? We're all weak. We all get overwhelmed. I don't think Paul is suggesting some type of fake Christian positivity, like everything's good, praise the Lord, right? That's not what he's suggesting, I don't think. I think what he is doing, though, is demonstrating a shift in our focus away from ourselves and to others, And so we can take all of our cares, all of our hurts, all of our fears and anxieties, and we can take them to the Lord in prayer. Jesus did that. God wants us to do that. But then at some point we say, Lord, your will be done. And we ask the question, how are you going to use what I am going through for the advancement of your kingdom? How will you use it for the good of others? And that is a powerful question to help us reframe what we are going through as we suffer. Okay, so that's the main idea. Everything, all the adversity he's gone through has served to advance the gospel. And now he's going to give two examples, one from inside, one from outside his imprisonment, and the first is from inside the imprisonment. We read that in verse 13. He says this, So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He mentions the imperial guard. These are the elite Roman soldiers, right? They guard the emperor. So you can imagine like our secret service guarding the president. 
And when he mentions all the rest, this is probably Roman officials, other people who are involved in their judicial system, right? Everyone who's involved in Paul's imprisonment and his eventually getting to see the emperor for his appeal, this is who he's talking about. Now, Paul is physically chained to an imperial guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They work in shifts, so he probably sees multiple guards every single day. And what he says is that the whole imperial guard and all the rest know that he's in prison because of his faith in Jesus. How in the world did they learn that? (laughs) Because Paul told them, right? I mean, he's got a captive audience. He is chained to a guy. This soldier is going to hear all about Jesus, right? Everyone that Paul bumps into is going to hear about Jesus. So let me ask you, do the people who are around you at work, at school, in your neighborhood, do they know that you're a Christian? And is the impression of Christians that you're giving them a positive one or a negative one? I have a very good friend of mine in our small group many years ago, went into work over the weekend, and because it was the weekend, he dressed casually, wore some jeans and a t-shirt, happened to be a Christian t-shirt that he was wearing, bumps into someone else he works with at work over the weekend, and they notice his shirt, and they go, oh, you're a Christian? I didn't know that. And this really convicted him. Like, he came back to our small group, and he was like, How can I have worked with this guy for a couple of years and him not know that I was a Christian? And it impacted all of us. And and we were like, how how do we go about making sure that the people around us know that we are Christians? Now, I'm not suggesting that you start leaving tracks in all the cubicles in your office, that you start spamming people with Bible verses through email. What I am suggesting is like Paul, that we see ourselves as ambassadors for Jesus wherever we are, regardless of the circumstances. That we look for and that we pray for opportunities to have spiritual conversations with people. There's a guy named Greg Kokel, the founder of Stand to Reason Ministries. Uh, He's got an approach to evangelism that I have adopted. And he says that he prays and then he goes fishing. And what he means by that is he casts out a line into the water. He just makes some kind of small spiritual comment. And then he waits to see if the fish bite. If the fish don't bite, he just moves on. No pressure, he leaves it alone. But if they nibble, then he's going to reel the line in a little bit and, and try and extend the conversation. And so I try to do that myself at work. Right? If I'm at work and we're talking about, what would you do over the weekend? I'm going to make sure that one of the things I include is, oh, and we went to church. Right? If a, if a co-worker mentions some difficult thing they're going through, I'm going to make sure that I follow up with them in a couple of days and say, hey, how's that thing? I've been praying for you. If we're talking about books that we've been reading... I'm going to share a few. I'm going to make sure one of them is a Christian book. Or, or maybe I'm going to say, oh, and I've been studying something called the letter to the Philippians. Right? I'm just going to see, do they nibble at all? If, the, if they don't react at all, okay, just move on. But if they do, then I'm going to take the next step in the conversation and just see where God takes that conversation. 
Now, I don't know what Paul's method was with the guards and everyone else, but I know that he was intentional and he was active because everyone knew that he was in prison because of his faith in Jesus, right? I also don't know how many of them became followers of Jesus, but some of them did. And we know that because turn over to the last page of this letter. The very end of the letter, he's wrapping it up. Chapter 4, verse 22, he says, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. There are Christians in Caesar's household because Paul has been in prison in Rome. How cool is that? That is just amazing. All right, that is the first example of how the gospel has advanced And that was inside his imprisonment. The second one is outside of his imprisonment. And that's verse 14. He says this. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Okay, so there are two groups uh, of brothers who are proclaiming Christ. Right? Who are are speaking the word without fear. Um, I'm sorry. That's the next verse. Okay, so th- this one where he says, hey, the, these people, they're, they're, they're bold. Uh, they've become more confident in the Lord by his, by his imprisonment. This is unexpected as well. So just like when he says the advance of the gospel, that was expected. So he says, hey, it's really served to advance the gospel. This is unexpected. Because you would think that if the Christians in Rome see Paul put in prison, that that would make them scared. That that would make them more timid. Like, hey guys, we better keep things down or we're going to end up in prison as well. And yet it's the exact opposite. What happens is that they become more confident in the Lord, more bold to speak the word. And the question is how? How did that happen? Why did it happen that way? And the answer is, it's Paul's example. They saw, they watched how Paul responded to his adversity They saw his confidence in the Lord, and it gave them confidence in the Lord. Because courage is contagious. Courage is contagious. And I want to ask you, can you think of Christians who you've watched go through adversity, who you've watched suffer, maybe for their faith, maybe not, but where that's given you courage, that's given you confidence? I'll share two quick personal examples The first, I've got a friend of mine, uh, he and his wife and their kids have been missionaries overseas for many years. They were in one particular country for several years. And after several years, one day, the police show up at their apartment and they take him to jail and they leave other police with his wife and kids. And he's in jail for a couple of days. No physical torture, just intense questioning for hours and hours at a time, not knowing how long he would be there, not knowing what's going on with his wife and his kids. Eventually, they take him back to his apartment, and they say, you've got 24 hours to get out of our country. And so they left. And in talking to him, he said, Scott, the only thing that kept me from, you know, sane, the only thing that kept me from losing it while I was sitting in that jail cell, not knowing what was going to happen, was prayer and the scripture that I had memorized. And yet he was convicted because he hadn't memorized very much scripture. And so what happened is after all this, eventually they, you know, they came back to the United States, went through some counseling, but then they went back overseas as missionaries to a different country, obviously. 
But he decided, I am going to memorize the New Testament. Because if I'm ever in that place again, I want to have a lot of scripture in my heart ready to go. And he started a YouTube channel to kind of track his, you know, progress as he's, you know, memorizing the New Testament and and wanted to teach other people how to memorize the New Testament. And that encouraged me. I was like, okay, one, I hope I'm never in a jail anywhere in the U.S. or outside the U.S., but I do want to have more of God's word in my heart. And so I just started trying to work at memorizing more scripture. That was an example of someone whose adversity and suffering because of their faith encouraged my own. The second is a friend of mine, a fellow elder at our church, who over the last three years, his wife slowly died. She died at the end of last year. Um, And we watched this couple uh, over this period of time face this path of suffering with faith, with grace. And, and this guy is someone who has accomplished a lot in his lifetime. He's very intelligent. He's got an incredible sense of humor, right? Lots of things that I could point to that I would say, hey, I want to be like this guy in this way. And yet none of those things are what come to mind first. None of those things are going to be what I re- What I'm going to remember for the rest of my life is his loving service in the midst of this suffering to his wife as she slowly died. So I asked you, are there Christians that you look to and you've seen how they've faced their adversity, their suffering, and it's encouraged you? And the flip side of that same question is, are other people, are other Christians, when they watch you suffer, are they encouraged by, ha- by how you handle your own adversity? Because I can assure you, other people are watching. They're always watching. They're especially watching when you go through suffering. Okay, so those are the two examples he gives of how the gospel has advanced. One inside, one outside. It, th- it looks like things are going well, right? The gospel is advancing. But there are some challenges, and that's what he's going to mention in this next section, verses 15 through 18. Let me read those verses to you. It says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. And so here are the two groups I started to talk about a couple of minutes ago, right? These are the two groups that are proclaiming Christ, but one group is doing it out of envy and rivalry. Another group is doing it from goodwill. It's important to note that both groups, though, are Christians, right? These are two different groups of this the brothers that he mentioned. These are Christians. Now, now, Paul is not shy when it comes to confronting people about the gospel, right? In other letters, he very clearly and repeatedly condemns people for preaching a distorted gospel. But that's not what he's doing here. What he is criticizing is not their message, right? They are proclaiming the gospel. What he's criticizing is their motive. Now, Motives do matter, right? They're important, but that's not his focus. 
That's not Paul's focus. So in some way, which we don't clearly understand, they are proclaiming the gospel and trying to hurt Paul in the process. How, how is that happening? Again, it's, it's confusing, it's vague, and the reason it's confusing and vague is because Paul didn't tell us. And that's another good lesson for us to learn. Paul didn't detail out how all these people were trying to hurt him. Because again, that wasn't his focus. His focus, because his focus was the message, he could say, look, I rejoice that the gospel is proclaimed. He mentions their motive because it's important. Motives matter. But that's, that's not where he spends his time. He spends his time saying, but I can rejoice because the gospel is proclaimed. So let me ask you another question. Are there God-fearing, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians that you just don't like? You're laughing because you're thinking of someone right now. God loves them as much as he loves you. Think about that for a second. As much as he loves you, he loves that person you don't like. Are there God-fearing, Bible-teaching, Jesus-proclaiming churches or pastors that you just don't care for? God uses them too. And so maybe, like Paul, our focus should be on rejoicing when the gospel is proclaimed rather than on how we don't like that person or that church, or detailing out all the different areas we disagree. All right, I'm almost done. But before I wrap things up, let me ask one more question. What is this gospel that Paul is willing to suffer for, that he tells the entire imperial guard about, that the brothers and sisters in the church are, are more bold to speak without fear, and that some are proclaiming even though they've got bad motives. He keeps talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? Now, in a room this size with this many people, I don't want to assume that all of you know what the gospel is. So let me tell you what the gospel is. The word means good news. And it's good news in relationship to some bad news. Here's the bad news. The bad news is there is a God who created and sustains the entire universe. And he is perfectly holy and perfectly just. He created humans in his image, and that's why we have inherent dignity and value, but we rebelled against him. Each one of us have rebelled, have sinned against God, and we are guilty. We're also spiritually helpless. We can't be good enough to undo the bad things that we've done. And so because we're guilty, the Bible says we deserve judgment, and it describes that judgment as being eternally separated from God in a place called hell. And that is really bad news. The good news is that the same God who is perfectly holy and just is also perfectly merciful. And he did something for us that we could not do on our own. Through his son Jesus, born of a virgin who lived a sinful, a sinless, sinless life, we'll edit that out, right, on the podcast, hopefully, who lived a sinless life, right? He died in our place for our sins. He was dead, buried, rose from the dead three days later. To prove that he 
is who he claimed to be and that he can do what he claimed he could do, which is bring us to the Father. The Bible says that if you put your faith in him, if you trust Jesus, not only will God forgive your sins, like erasing all the negative and bring you back up to zero, he doesn't stop there. He gives you the righteousness of Christ. You're adopted as sons and daughters. That we will live eternally with him. And that is really good news. That's the gospel. And for those of you who already are followers of Jesus, it is that gospel message that can give us the strength and the courage to face the adversity that we're going to face. To go through the suffering that we will suffer. For those of you who are here who might not yet be followers of Jesus Christ, if you're interested, I would love to talk to you after the service. What does it mean? How do you become a follower of Jesus? So how should we suffer? That was the initial question. Let me wrap up. How should we face adversity? Whether it's for our faith or not. And I would answer simply, like Paul, like Jesus Like Christians throughout the generations have faced adversity and suffering. We bring all of our fears, all of our needs, all of our cares and concerns to God in prayer. And then we trust God. And we keep our focus on how what we are going through will serve to advance his kingdom and benefit others. And that is really easy to say and very hard to do. And so we have to repeatedly do it every day. Lord, help me to shift my focus back to how are you going to use what I'm going through for the good of your kingdom and for the good of other people? We can do that by sharing our faith as we suffer. We can do that with our example as other people are watching us and they see how we suffer with faith in in Christ. And we can do that by rejoicing when the gospel is proclaimed whether we really like the person who's proclaiming it or not, right? Will you bow your heads? Let me pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul and this particular letter. Lord, I pray for each of us. Uh, Suffering is hard. I don't like it. I don't think anyone does. Um, Lord, would you help us to have a Christ-centered focus when we go through suffering? Help us to trust you, Lord, Uh, that you will use it for our good and for your glory. Lord, help us to hold on to you. And when we can't hold on to you, Lord, uh, help us to remember that you're the one holding on to us. Lord, thank you uh, for your word and for this reminder. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.